This week, we continue our series through Ephesians 6, where we've been looking at the armor of God. Last week, we spent some time with the shield of faith. We saw how faith does not fail, but we need to strengthen our shield arm so that we can bring the shield, bring faith to bear. We confess that sometimes we want the arrows of the evil one to make it past our guard, but we also acknowledge that that is not okay. Like the scutum of the Roman army, the shield of faith is what identifies a Christian. It is a vital piece of the armor of God. Today we'll be looking at the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, so verse 17a, which reads, the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. As we have with a few of our pieces of equipment, we are not going to just sit in Ephesians this morning, but instead focus on Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and his writing is fantastic. I I love Isaiah. They, They call Isaiah the gospel of the Old Testament. There's so much hope in what he has for us, so much promise. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 12. Again, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3. If you do not have a Bible with you, but prefer the tangible feel of the the text in your hands, there should be a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you, but for the rest of us, the words will be on the screens beside me. Again, the text is Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. If you are able, I encourage you to stand for the reading of the word. Isaiah 12, 1 to 3. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would... Perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So next week is the Super Bowl. On February 11th, the San Francisco 49ers will take on the defending champs, the Kansas City Chiefs, to find out who the best football team in America is. What a disappointing matchup. If you could have asked me what the least inspiring or exciting matchup would be, this, like, this is it. I hope they both lose. (laughs) But even though it's a lame Super Bowl, I'm still going to watch it. And so are millions upon millions of people around the world. Football's the most popular sport in America. Its development was influenced by rugby and soccer. Now, some argue that American football was actually invented in Canada, though there are others that respond that they were both being developed together at the same time. At the end of the day, what we do know for sure is that right here in the great state of New Jersey on November 6, 1869, the first American football game was played between Princeton and Rutgers, which is also kind of sad. I know we have some alumni and at least parents of current students at these schools, and listen, I don't want to hear any excuses about how bad your football teams are. You've been playing it longer than anybody else. So though they started playing the games in in the 1860s, they didn't introduce a key piece of equipment 
until the 1920s. Could you imagine running around, tackling, blocking, participating in all the physical elements of football and not wearing a helmet? Thankfully, someone finally thought it might be wise to protect your head in a sport this physical, and so protection for the vital piece of the body were designed. When you see what they came up with, you kind of wonder if it was even worth it. The first football helmets were made of leather. They didn't look very comfortable or like they were going to be very good at their jobs. These puppies looked like they had more protection built in for the players' ears than for their brains. How could we think that this helmet would do its job? What about these pieces of equipment, these thin leather shells that the players would strap their heads on, onto their heads would, would make anyone think that they provided true safety in the physical chaos that is football? What about these helmets would inspire confidence? Because when playing football, confidence in your equipment is important, right? Would a running back carry the ball, putting himself with his head in harm's way as forcefully as he needs to in order to gain those extra yards if he didn't have confidence in his equipment? How about the linebacker, or really anybody on the field? Would anyone be able to play their position confidently, even adequately, if they weren't wearing a helmet? No. Those games would be horrible to watch. It'd be like watching Princeton and Rutgers. But seriously, the confidence that you have in your equipment has a tangible effect on how you play the game. That's true for sports and is true for spiritual warfare. It's true for our relationship with God as well. In the first verse of our text this morning, the prophet Isaiah writes a line that we, we struggle with. Although you were angry with me, writes the prophet. Now Isaiah's thought doesn't start there, and it certainly doesn't end there, but in this line, in these six words, our fears are vocalized, they are realized, aren't they? For in this statement, Isaiah makes it clear that God has reason to be mad at us, or even more clearly, we have given him reason to be mad at us. God doesn't get angry without cause. He's not like that. He's not temperamental. He's not me, right? Like there are days I wake up mad and I don't know why. Maybe I slept wrong. Maybe I'm still subconsciously working through an argument I had with somebody else. Maybe I didn't get enough of the blankets in the middle of the night. Maybe a one-year-old cried his way into my bed and then kicked me periodically throughout my sleep cycle. There could be a ton of reasons, a ton of reasons that I woke up in a bad mood. First of which is that I am a sinner and prone to failure. And though I may want to put that on God, those shoes just don't fit. He is righteous. He is pure. He is holy. He is not angered without cause. He doesn't wake up in a bad mood. Dude doesn't even need to sleep to recharge. He's always good. And so if he's mad, if he's angry with us, as Isaiah states in our text this morning, then it's not because of him, but because of us. Deep down, we know that God's anger with us is legitimate. It has been earned. We know that we have not kept his law perfectly. We have sinned against him again and again and again. We have professed to love him, and then we do all these things that serve us and rebel against him. We've kept idols, right? Maybe it's sports, maybe it's money or fashion or video games or music or movies or cars, our, our kids, our spouses, our jobs. I, I don't know what it is, but I know that each of us struggle to put God first in our lives. But our failures are not limited to idols. 
we each have vices. Some of us struggle with, with lust. Some of us struggle with envy. For some of us, it's rage. For some, it's respect. For others, it's thievery or lying. And for most of us, it's, it's a mixture, right? As we've been going through the Ten Commandments in confirmation this year, one thing that is just keeps hitting home with each commandment is that truly we have broken them all. None of us has kept a single one of the commandments perfectly. We have broken them all. We have all sinned against God. So yes, church, we have given God plenty of reason to be angry with us. And that, that can make us a bit nervous, right? I love how Ray Ortland Jr. put it in his commentary on this text. As he is sitting in recognition of God's righteousness and the well-earned anger towards those that he loves but have hurt him so deeply and so continually, the theologian writes, our deepest problem is not whether we will love God, but whether God will love us. In this statement, he hits on a deep struggle in Christianity and Western civilization. We get so caught up in how we feel about God, if we're going to accept him, if, if we're able to reconcile God being good with allowing all these bad things to happen, if, if we're okay with believing in a God who sends people to hell, or if hell even exists in the first place. So much of how our society, and by extension our neighbor, worked through these, these questions, and yet we are not immune to the influence of the culture around us. And so it's easy to slip into the temptation to frame the question, has he earned my faith? Do I want to believe in a God that lets these hard things happen? Do I want to believe in a God that hasn't taken care of cancer, that let COVID be a thing, right? Like, like those are just two examples. But we know, we understand the underlying thought because it's presented to us all the time. Has God earned our confidence? Do we believe he can do a good job? And by good, we mean a job that we approve of. And Ray Ortland Jr. Is, is saying that this is not actually the question. Our deepest problem is not whether we will love, we will believe in God, but whether God will love us. God doesn't have anything to prove to us. He's the creator of the universe. He can do what he wants. We will not always like it. It won't always serve what we think is best. But we're the broken ones here. We're the ones that are in the wrong continually. He's the one that's perfect. He's the one that's all-powerful. So though we may try to deflect and act like it's God that needs to earn our favor, the reality is, the harder question is, have we earned his? We know that we haven't. In fact, we know that we can't. For God has every reason to be angry with us. This, this we have earned. And though this is undeniably true, it's not where our text leaves us this morning. For the full reading of verse 1 says this, In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. The anger of our God, the anger that we have earned through our rebellion, through our sin, has been turned away. How? Remember, God isn't Dad woke up on the wrong side of the bed, anger. It's righteous. We deserve it. We, we earned it, and yet he did not pour his anger out on us. Instead, his anger was turned from us, and it was poured out over his son, Jesus Christ. We see this clearly in Scripture. We see that God is well aware of our sinfulness, our falling short, and so he sent us Jesus. 
And Jesus came and lived among us. He taught us. He loved us. He cast out our demons and he healed our sick. But he said things. He, he did things that rubbed us wrong too. And so though he was perfect, though what he said was truth, we hated him for it. And we betrayed him. We denied him and we sentenced him to death, death on a cross. And as the nails went through his hands and his feet and as he was lifted up to be mocked and ridiculed, there on the cross the Bible tells us that the wrath of God, the righteous anger about all of our sin was turned from us, the guilty, and poured out on Jesus, the innocent. He was perfect, and yet because of his great love for us, he took every time that we kept idols, every time that we've looked at another with lust, Every time we've run to our vices, he took every time we've fallen, every time we've failed, every time we have disappointed our God with our selfishness and our disobedience, Jesus took all of it. Though he had never once sinned, our sin was imputed to him, given to him, even though he did not earn it. And there on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out, the anger of God was poured out on Jesus, and he suffered it willingly. And before he died, he said these three words, it is finished. The penalty of, of sin has been paid with the death of Christ. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we trust in him, when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, we are saved. Through faith, the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, we live in the fruits of forgiveness. Through faith, we are brought into the family of God and declared sons and daughters co-heirs with Christ. All this through faith, none of this through works. And so for those who live by faith, the anger of God has turned. We can have comfort in the cross and all the promises that it holds for us. The prophet continues, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Ray Ortland Jr. had another observation in his commentary that hit home for me. He said this, We complicate our trust in God. We mix in other things. We trust in our trust in God. We trust in our theology of God. We trust in our worship of God. We cling to God plus whatever makes us feel comfortable and superior. And the more props we need, the more insecure we become. When the grace of God overrules our folly, real faith comes alive and our outlook is simplified so that we say, Behold, God, my salvation. He is enough. Period. And he's right, you know. It's tempting for us to try to write ourselves into the story. It's tempting to trust in our trust in God. To trust that we're worshiping the right way. It's tempting for us to try to add things, add expectations to salvation. It's tempting to cling to God plus whatever makes us feel comfortable or right or moral. But the more props we add, the more insecure we become. When we try to insert ourselves into our salvation, then we insert weakness and doubt. The only way salvation is true, the only way we can have confidence in our salvation is when it is in Christ alone. Not us. Christ alone. Surely God is my salvation, writes Isaiah. Not me. Not how well I'm living my life. Not how incredibly moral I've been this week. No, God alone. Christ 
alone. And if that's where we're resting, then we can have confidence in the salvation that we have been given. The football helmet has come a long way since it was simply a leather shell. Today, they have all this science and research, and they've added rules to the game that that can give players confidence in how they play. The helmets of the Roman army went under a similar transformation. They, too, started out as leather. But they advanced to being made of metal. They had a band that protected the forehead and then stretched to provide protection for the neck as well. Plates hung down from the sides to protect the cheeks and the side of the face. Historians tell us that Romans marched forward with confidence in their helmets, these pieces of equipment that could turn a spear and stand up to the stroke of a sword or an axe. It would get them through the battle unscathed. They could put their trust in it. And so when Paul tells us that we are given the helmet of salvation for our battle against the enemy, he is telling us that we can have confidence in our God, that our salvation is secure. We do not need to doubt it, for our salvation does not lie in the works of man, but in the work of God, in the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. We can have confidence in our salvation, church, because it does not rest in us, but in Christ. And he has not failed us. In fact, our salvation is not only something that gives us confidence, but something that intimidates the enemy. So if you'll allow me to indulge myself for just a second here. For a while, the Seahawks were the most intimidating team in football. And you could attribute that largely to two players, one on either side of the ball. On defense, we had Cam Chancellor, a teddy bear off the field, but arguably the hardest-hitting safety in the league when he was on it. Cam destroyed people. And on offense, we had Marshawn Lynch, a wrecking ball of a running back. One of the objectives in football is to not get tackled, and so often people run away from the guys trying to tackle them. Lynch preferred to run over people. I've never seen a running back run into contact the way that Lynch did. He brought it he brought it to the defense, and his physical style would wear them down after a while. It was, it was awesome to watch. So these guys were intimidating in their own right, Cam and, and Marshawn, but something that added to their mystique, their intimidation factor, were their helmets. They each had a dark visor, so you couldn't see their eyes, and it, it looked awesome, but it was also incredibly intimidating. And some of the helmets back in the day had an intimidation factor to them as well. It, it probably wasn't very practical, but man, the ancient Romans had some awesome-looking helmets. They were taken a bit from Spartan design, but with the pointed, plated, like, facing things coming down, the spikes coming down, little, little eye holes and that red crown up top, they were awesome-looking. No one wants to fight the guys wearing this. Nobody. Church, your helmet of salvation is intimidating to the enemy. You have something that he will never have, can never have, something he and his forces abandoned when they tried to overthrow God in the heavens all those years ago. Christ in us, the salvation we have been given, is intimidating to the enemy. We do not need to fear. It is they who fear us. For it is they who fear the one who is in us. We may not have dark visors or that crown of red. But we do have the blood of Christ on the cross shed for us, and the enemy cannot stand against it. Our helmets are secure. In Christ, our salvation is secure. We have nothing to fear, church, and so we stand. We stand as our God has called us to, and so 
when we can do no other, may we stand confessing that God is our salvation and that he is enough, period. What a fantastic, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.